The Accutron Show. Accutron. It's not a timepiece. It's a conversation piece. With your host, Bill McCuddy, and contributors, Scott Alexander and David Graver. I think fewer remain in really good condition, I think, with the advent of social media, the internet, of course. Consumers, collectors are, are doing more homework, more research. So it's really now all about originality of those pieces, condition. Is it the correct dial that originally was part of that watch? And then is there a story around it? The voice you heard at the top of the show was today's guest, Executive Director, Industry Analyst for Watches and Luxury at the NPD Group. Who are they and what do they do? It's Reg Brock, and he's here to talk about everything collectible in the next few years. The rules have changed in collecting. We'll get into that, too. But first up, me, Bill McCuddy, culture writer Scott Alexander, and editor David Graber, discussing all that and more on this episode of The Accutron Show. Stay tuned. Gentlemen, let me pose this question. What makes something collectible? What are the rules of engagement when it comes to anything we want to put in our basement, eventually in our basement, but starting out on our mantle? I think what it's whatever want? you can convince someone else holds value. <laughs> like your wife? It's like the dollar. It's like <laughs> the dollar is worth something because we say it's worth something. Yeah. I, I, I look at everything I buy now and think about the tag sale it'll eventually end up at. It's a future. I say that to Mrs. McCuddy all the time. No, don't buy that. That'll be in our yard in three years. Uh, what David, the, what do you think? I think the illusion of scarcity, and I think that applies to the dollar as well as people are striving to, to accumulate more dollars. But with the watch industry in particular, people think, oh, there are only so many of those, whether or not that's true, and they seek to have them. I think that's definitely been a case for Rolex. Well, yeah, the nice absolutely. thing with luxury is it often is true that there is a limited supply. The government can always print more money. You can't always create more 1963 Accutrons. Yeah, although uh, the part of me that always said they only made 10 because they could only sell 10. I'll never forget there was a Gerard Perigo piece that was there was only going to be 50 of. And I went into a store and I said, can I, my birthday's March 7th, can I get 3-7? And he said, yeah, if we get that high. And I said, whoa, 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 what do you mean? He goes, well, I said, it's supposed to be 50. He goes, um, let, when we get to 36, I'll call you. So, and, and the sell through on something like that can be, you know, years, two or three years. Uh, so it is, I think, the idea of what is considered real intrinsic value. So it's value. It's what we love, obviously, the things we like. And then it's uh, whether or not we think it has some kind of a future. Well, there's also the things we like today. And then there's the things we liked years ago. Nostalgia is a massive piece of this. I am also curious how materials play a part in this. Stainless steel, when it was introduced in the watch industry, sort of threw everyone for a loop because gold platinum, silver, they all have inherent value. What was the value of stainless steel? What is the value of titanium? What is the value of any new age material? Even watch cases being composed of sapphire crystal. What does this mean? How does that translate to value? You know, the, the, the saddest thing you can ever do is take a, a gold watch into a place and ask them the melted down value because it really will stun you how little they're worth. And, and that's why I think in some of the cases... Um, stainless steel, which they made fewer of in some cases, Patek Philippe, for example, are much more valuable than the gold 
uh, either rose or yellow. And it feels more honest also. It's like, what do you like? Do you like the stainless steel? Is the titanium more comfortable? Like the, these are true factors as opposed to sort of these extrinsic ideas of like, well, gold is valuable. I should get the gold. I don't really like the color, but like you get it anyway because you think it's the more valuable thing. These materials let you, I think of um, polished concrete, right? Concrete, fancy? Oh no, concrete's real fancy. Like, where'd that come from? I watched the Flintstones. I never thought that was going to be valuable someday. Um, Because also we are the Accutron Show, we will also ask our guest uh, whether or not the relaunch of that brand will make some of the older ones more collectible. I'll be very interested to hear that. He's got a fascinating background. He was with StockX in Detroit for a while, the huge company that values, they started with sneakers and uh, comic books. And he was running Talk the about watch nostalgia. division there. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, he went to Christie's uh, and opened their private uh, sales division there. That was an auction house that decided people can walk in and go, well, I'd like to sell this. And they'd have to say, well, we our next sale is in three months, six months. They decided to make a private sale division where you could sell it the next day. So we'll also talk to him about how that's changing. The resale business, Nordstrom's has a... Uh, a resale department they just opened up. And my wife talks about the the trading value of Birkenstock bags and all these things that have an afterlife after they've been sold in a store and, and go up in value. He'll be good uh, to ask about that. Have you ever sold a watch? Yes, I've sold plenty. And uh, I've sold way too many of some of the valuable ones because I just never thought they were going to go any higher. Rolex sports models is a perfect example. Not just the Paul Newmans, of which I had a few, but the just the regular Daytonas and stuff. When they when you bought them at five and sold them for seven thousand, you thought you won the lottery, and now they're a hundred grand. It's very so hard to resist that. Yeah. I won the lottery feeling. You <laughs> yeah. know, yeah. the guys who sold their Bitcoin when it was worth ten bucks. Who collects anything here? Just jump in. What do you got? Do you are you a pen guy? Or are you a? I got a couple pens. I got a vinyl? couple watches, uh, and I have a lot of vinyl. You do have vinyl. Yes. Yeah. That's that's my weakness. That's an incredible renaissance, and like uh, it's been amazing to watch. I mean, because and also I love that because it's so functional. Like I only own a few watches because I only wear a few watches, right. but I'll listen to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pieces of vinyl i can't tell you how many records i gave away just gave away and uh, david what do you collect oh i'm horrified to answer that question i'm a serial collector i do have about 30 watches all of them <laughs> what under... don't you collect is that an easier question <sighs> i didn't know cereal was good to collect <laughs> I there's guess a total secondary they don't market make in cereal. anymore so maybe that is no good. there are a bunch of brands from the 70s that you will you will get a lot of money on ebay I'm for sure boxes of uh, discontinued cereal so uh I'm I'm guessing you're an old radio guy, mid-century blah punk table radios. No? You know, I do actually have one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. I just uh... I've had to close down several storage units. That was a hard day for me. I actually have a comic book collection that goes back to the late 80s. I do have the watches. I do have some pens, and that's something that I'm trying to nourish every single day. I don't get the pen thing, but I know there are people absolutely devoted to that in a future podcast we'll talk to uh i love the things that you're gonna use and i will use a pen a really nice pen is a blessing in your hand and an heirloom item yeah i like the idea of being able to pass things down right now my eyes are really set on uh jager lecoute grand reverso vintage from the 70s probably in white gold and i can't explain my attraction to it maybe the eccentricity 
But in my gut, it's like I, it's what I know that I want next. Is that the one that flips over? It does indeed flip over. And then over. would you get there your initials faces. put on the... Some people do the whole like initial on the side that's the back. I'm actually really drawn to the idea of someone else's engraving being there. I love the idea of having a little bit of the past, someone else's past on my wrist. That's funny because... Uh, an, in the watch world, if it has a lot of engraving that's not anybody important, it's considered, sometimes they try and laser it off, and you're the opposite. You would love to see. I'm completely comfortable with carrying someone else's past. I'm a man of the world. Some, <laughs> some banker's initials or some titan of baron of industry. <laughs> but I think that's a really interesting point, that, that the thing that draws you to this, you can't quite explain. Like, you don't know exactly why you want it, but you definitely do. There's a relationship you have with these kind of special items. There's a sense of hope in some things you can collect. Uh, but on the other hand, I, I do think that it's cathartic to get rid of stuff. And so I'm always... Well, Marie know. Kondo is the enemy of all collectors everywhere, I think. She's the, <laughs> she in is the bane of uh, <laughs> the she modern She certainly trend. helped me collect more things from other people. I, right. I have there to we wonder. go. The back, yeah, David's there on the backside <laughs> of the Marie Kondo uh, trend. Just, just co- collecting even more. I am curious about whether you can buy something today in the smartwatch industry or the time we live in in the smartwatch world that's going to be collectible someday. If you bought a Samsung Android gear five, six years ago, <laughs> you are out that money. That is not coming back on the secondary on the market. Hand, on that uh, Pawn Stars thing that they do, the three chubby family guys that all seem to be related um, on History Channel, they had the number one Apple, like Apple number one computer. And it was like a million bucks. And it couldn't do anything. And that's, an, ex- that's an exception of <laughs> extreme Pong scarcity. And that was it. That's an exception of extreme scarcity. There's only a few of right. those. They only made 10 of those computers or something on that order. It's You're right. And, but they were all called number one, which is kind of weird. They, right. They, I mean, they're wooden. Yeah, and they're they bizarre. Were, they're, and you can see all the works and, and everything. And they the, the, the program that they can print out is like Steve Jobs' face, I think. And then... And, and a couple of very simple games. But they're also a true piece of actual living history. Like I'll bet the Lisas, I'll bet the Macintoshes, the very first ones with the box and paper. That's where it gets interesting to me because that's that midpoint. They made a lot of Apple II GS, yeah, the Waz What type of person saved those things? Do right. you save your electronic devices? Well, no, that's the whole thing with box and papers and watches now too. Like you everybody have your watch threw papers. that stuff away. As as I don't have home. the watch papers. I have all the old electronic stuff and the manuals and the cables and the yeah if i hoard anything it's electronic you know when i got electronic equipment i could not wait to read that uh booklet the owner's manual from beginning to end yeah, and all now, the things it can do that's the first My thing i shred receiver. when i open right. the thing up i mean that's like nobody yeah the pioneer receiver the like all the morants the tamburg the like all the things that i wanted to know everything it could possibly do and I read it back to front. I have quite a video game console collection. Do you? But that's, again, that's that's in use. You know, these are things that are that are getting played. Has the internet enabled you? Um, it's more stuff I've been collecting as you go. Like, my comic book collection is the comic books I bought to read in the 80s same, and the 90s. Same, um, And so, you know, these collections have grown very much in that functional way. Do you have, communi- do you have a community around your collections, any of them? I have a community around my video game collection, uh, definitely. There's a lot of critics. I was a video game critic for a long time. I've written for video games and things like this. So I have a massive collection. What's the most expensive video game that anyone could possibly have in their collection? There are limited edition 
never released Nintendo cartridges for games that are actually unfinished. So these, this is your ultimate non-functional thing. It's just pure like scarcity. Like a beta? Like exactly. a thing that only goes to these level are like one, let's say? like internal manufacturing items. That and what did, what's one of those go for? Oh, thousands of dollars. Get out of here. For sure. For oh sure. Well, that's, this is the thing. In the previous era, before uh, CD-ROMs and things, everything was on chips. And so that's a true artifact. CD-ROMs got scratched and there was a zillions of them. It cost a lot of money to make the original Nintendo cartridges, the original Atari cartridges. Those There's only so much of that silicon because it's literally printed on silicon. I bow to you, Commodore 64. <laughs> I, I dub you our, our game master. Uh, so, yeah. So the, what is collectible? What is the future of luxury? Where is it all going from here? Uh, we've got the guy to answer it and he'll be with us right after this. The world runs on Accutron time. Accutron watches since 1960 from New York City to around the world. Welcome back. We are going to find out what luxury is doing. Where's luxury going? We're not sure. Uh, We were talking in the last segment about predictions and, and trends. But the man who can answer the question is here. It's Reg Brock. Reg is with something called NPD. Reg, welcome and tell us what the hell NPD is. Thank you, Bill. Um, NPD is really a leader in market research and predicting the future. So um, it's a 50-year-old privately held company that tracks about $2 trillion in consumer spend across 20 different industries. My industry is watches and luxury. So that's, that's what I focus on and my team focuses on. Um, but we really... Um, help brands, manufacturers see into the future, help them with their distribution, product development. And it's really all based on actual point of sale data that we get from our participating retailers. So they upload it all to you and you turn around and we process it. it, um, We repackage it and we present that to the brands that we work with as advisors. All of that data coming towards you is backward looking data it's historical. How does that become a future prediction? Well, it's actual sell-through data. So when um, the media actually, for example, looks at Swiss watch exports, and those are the exports that Switzerland sends to various countries, but those are just what's shipped out, not necessarily what sells through. So when you get a, a very accurate view of actual point of sale data, what's selling, we track attributes, um, in watches, are blue dials selling more than black dials or green dials, for example? What are the trends in metals, precious metal, diamonds versus plain bezels, things like that? So, so we, we can see that trend over months and years and then extrapolate that. So as you see trends sort of start to brew or build, you yes. can then say, this is going, this is peaking, this is already done. Right, this maybe is- um, consumers are more interested in now in smaller um, di- case diameters, for example, than larger. So there's, there's trends that we basically dig deep on and figure out what they mean and, and work with the brands. In the age of the iPhone, on. then, what are people wearing and why? So with smartwatches, that the smartwatches, the Apple Watch has really only been around for, we're going on five years now. So it's in its relative infancy. But what smartwatches are doing are bringing... It's a big baby, though. It's well, gotten very it's powerful. Big. That's a it's big, big. Very quickly. It's big. But, but smartwatches in general are bringing new users into the category. 
they're also cannibalizing sales in their own price range. So for example, under $1,000, under $500, where smartwatches really reign and live, if you're a fashion watch manufacturer in that category, you're you're facing some serious headwinds. A Michael Kors and Armani are those the quartz based, not expensive fashion watches. Correct. Yeah. So those those watches in that price category are for sure hurting. Well, it's a brutal game when you're playing in that technology field. You're playing against Apple or against Samsung or against these other makers Fitbit. who are they're used to putting out a product that is going to not just be old and maybe not on trend anymore in four or five years, it's going to be useless. And it's it's going to cost that much and not literally not work in five years. And they're pretty upfront and about that. Where is value coming from? And especially in the age of like carbon fiber material and titanium, where it's not gold or platinum, where people are struggling to know what means what, what is the value of a watch today? I think with with traditional watches, the value is, especially if it's a mechanical watch, because we see you know a trend towards more consumers wanting an actual mechanical watch versus a quartz-powered watch, for example. So those are living, breathing, mechanical heirlooms that with proper maintenance can be, um, regardless of value, can be passed along generation to generation. Whereas your smartwatch, that shelf life is limited because we all want the latest technology in our electronics. Well, it makes me think of Sonos. Sonos just came out with this, these new products. They said, we're going to deprecate our old stuff. We're going to remove right. the software. I think anything before 2015, they're not supporting Meanwhile, anymore. if you've got clipsch horns from the 70s, they right. work fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, as soon as the manufacturer says, we're not going to support our older product with new software upgrades, that's when you're really, you know, as a consumer... Yeah, that's where, where the value but is. But let's yeah. get back to the value proposition because yes. David makes a good point. I think the Richard Miele uh, most expensive watch is made of titanium or carbon fiber. It's not a it's not a precious metal. So what are consumers doing? Are they confused or are they getting on board? You know, the, the case metal is never what necessarily determines the value. It's all about the brand, specific models, and specific condition. Many times with vintage watches, we talk about the provenance as well. I come from the auction world. Um, and a lot of that, all of those factors come together to tell the story of that watch. So You spent some time at Christie's and opened up their private sales division there. Uh, what Are we going to stop buying old watches eventually? No, because I think modern the modern product from, some, from these storied makers now is getting farther away from what that original product look like if you take Rolex for example you know Rolex sport watches were all made for specific purposes and you know throughout the 60s 70s early 80s even uh, these watches weren't super expensive they were made as tool watches back even as as um, late as 1972 a steel Rolex Daytona might have been $200 and it was not a good seller at retail and they were specific so you couldn't they go were into very it. specific you couldn't go into a nuclear power plant and not see someone with a milgauss on i never understood <laughs> I never, I right never. so same with their dive watches so um i think fewer remain in really good condition i think with with the advent of social media the internet of course consumers collectors are, are doing more homework more research so it's really now all about originality of those pieces condition is it the correct dial that originally was part of that watch? And then is there a story around it? Like with Paul Newman's Paul Newman, for example. And do you see that driving new models 
today this year's line is being driven by these cha- these changes in the well the big trend business. now in the last really 2 years is manufacturers watch manufacturers getting on that heritage reissue bandwagon so if you're a watchmaker that once made um, military watches for the US military for example the British royal forces those are those are being revived and those really resonate with the consumers that watch collectors dive watches pilot watches they're all but especially military reissues space (laughs) watches (laughs) we'll get to those in a moment which were based on a tuning fork i interviewed paul newman once and i brought a paul newman from my collection i don't have any more any anymore i had 11 i'm an idiot yes i sold them all uh but i showed him one and he said you know what's funny about that is that i wore it once in a movie and it became the big thing and everybody had to have it but in my personal life I only wore it in one race and I lost. So I never wore it again because I felt like it was an unlucky charm. So the, the the heritage behind the Paul Newman Rolex is pretty funny because he never wore it. $18 million later in world record, it's that was a big one, a big milestone. People look at that number, though, and just go, that's not true for everything. Absolutely not. I mean, that watch without him attached to it, that particular specimen uh, on a good day would have sold for 150 maybe $200,000 max. So what are the big movements in luxury? No pun intended with watches, but the just in general, where do you see, where, what are we going to be buying in five years? You know what we talk about a lot on this podcast? How discriminating people are becoming. Their time is valuable. Their money is valuable. The things they collect. There's a whole generation now, millennials, who don't really collect anything. They want everything They're to be sort of disposable. So there's a big They're, rental yeah. market now. So we're seeing we're seeing a trend in rental luxury. We're seeing a big trend in pre-owned luxury, whether it's watches, apparel, um, footwear even. Are watch collectors still flourishing? Are new watch collectors being born? They are absolutely being born. But what where we see watches doing well is at the higher end. So watches over... 3000 over $5,000. And the higher up you get up the food chain, the better luxury is doing with watches and many other things. So um, at the lower ends, traditional watches are, are being challenged, but certainly over $5,000, there's, there's a trend towards certainly new people coming into the Is that where you recommend people start? Don't, don't jump on a $1,000 watch. Maybe hold off on the $30,000 watch and save for the five or go directly to the five and up? Not necessarily. I mean, really, it's it's our first advice um, is buy what you like. Really think about what you like. It's so easy to be um, influenced with social media and what your your peers might say you should have. But a watch is such a big part of your identity. I think you have to do a little introspection to figure out who you are and what you want to project. And where does Accutron fit in that? Well, Accutron has a storied past. I mean, if you know any watch nerd um, holds Accutron, you know, close to their heart. Accutron's involvement with the space program, you know, certain astronauts wearing that watch as their own personal watch. Um, it's you know, it's it, there's a lot of excitement around this year's revamping and relaunch of that. Brand. Well, we share that enthusiasm, and in the category in general, I think we're always trying to get our finger on the pulse of what's going to happen next. I was in a Macy's store in Herald Square, and they're reselling Rolexes. And somebody told me uh, Nordstrom has just launched a, a couture, like very upscale resale uh, department. And what what I'm flabbergasted about is that 
when you bought something in a store in the old days, the last thing they wanted to imply to you was that someday you'd resell it or get rid of it or ever bring it back. They sold you something that you were going to keep for your whole life and hand down to other people, even if it was uh, just a box of crayons. Nobody thought about resale. And now, is that going to continue to grow? I think it absolutely, absolutely will continue to grow because the stigma about you're buying something used, it's not as good, is really gone. So there's no, no stigma. In fact, just like the car industry went through um, uh, that metamorphosis a couple decades ago with certified pre-owned, um, as long as you have someone vetting, you know, a team of experts vetting those pre-owned items um, for, uh, again, are they authentic? Are they in the right condition? If you can uphold those standards and, and buy from a trusted seller, uh, we're certainly seeing a lot of especially young, aspirational luxury consumers getting really behind resale because that value proposition is there. It's already, that item's already taken its fall from original retail, just like when you drive a car generally off the lot. It instantly declines in value and then tapers off. It's a smart value play. Will the relaunch of this brand help the old Accutrons? Absolutely. Yeah. So they'll be more aware. It'll it'll heighten their uh, popularity. Absolutely. Yeah. We see that when there is a relaunch of a model um, or of a model line. Um, Other brands have done something similar with their flagship lines. So you see that consumer, and not just in watches either, you see that consumer go back and try and find an original one. So they gravitate towards... The, the new one, because it ha- has all the modern upgrades, um, functions right, maybe better built, but then they want the original. And those are harder and harder to find, especially something with something as complicated as, a, as an Accutron. And in this age of sort of digital reproduction of infinite sort of uh, resources and one thing, it seems like the artifact, these artifacts are becoming more important. Do you see that across other categories as well as watches? Uh, we do. We see with, with certain luxury brands, when they do a remake of an overcoat, for example, people want to go back and find that original. And it's, and it's like finding a needle in a haystack. But a lot of times with pre-owned, it's the thrill of the chase. So people spend a lot of time online researching, trying, trying to find that item that you know, really fills that void in their, in their own wardrobe. I blame Antiques Roadshow for all of this because before that show came along, nobody really knew what anything was worth. Well, you're, you're referring to um, there was a gentleman on Antiques Roadshow uh, that when he was in the military in the early 70s at an Army PX bought a certain steel watch. And that watch originally, I think he paid something like $300 for it. And it was valued on, on the show um, anywhere between $500,000 and $700,000 at auction. Was that a Newman? Was that a Paul Newman? Or was that just a regular Daytona? That was, was a Newman, That right? was a Paul Newman. A so-called, quote-unquote, Paul Newman exotic dial. And explain the exotic dial, because people, this blows my mind. That well, they... the Rolex Daytona was such a poor seller at retail throughout the 60s and 70s, back when it was a manually wound watch. It, it There are stories that it, it just, they languished on the shelves for years, no one wanted them. And Rolex issued these exotic dials uh, to their authorized dealers to try and make it more exciting. Like a vinyl roof on, right. on a like, Right. So, <laughs> on a four So, yeah. So, they, they have an exotic look. It's just, you know, we, we refer to them as Paul Newman dials now because Paul famously wore that watch yeah. in his personal life and in, in the movie. So, 
but not that many races as we learned. Hey, listen, uh, before we let you go, what are the big trends coming in in the next few years in luxury, either in watches or out? Just uh, what's the next thing the way you see it? We're seeing a lot of successful um, luxury partnerships where you have a luxury brand partnering with um, either another luxury brand um, or uh, an artist or, you know, these collaborations. We're seeing a lot of those. So think about what Gucci's done um, recently with Disney, for example. So that's an unlikely partnership. Oh, yeah. But it brings in a whole different crowd. It's fun. You know, think of the different collabs that Supreme's done, like with Louis Vuitton, for example. The luxury brand Ramova, the suitcase brand, yes. and the partnership with Alex Israel, the artist, right. or with Dior. They partner with Supreme as well. So, you know, it's that that generates some serious excitement. Um, finally, not so much in watches with those collaborations, but we'll continue to see um, heritage reissues because so many brands like Bolivar, for example, have a real storied past, a rich history, a lot to dig back from the archives. And, you know, that, that's a way of, of celebrating the history of the brand, but also pleasing your longtime collectors and, and attracting new consumers as well. And to throw a shameless plug in, you think Accutrons are a strong buy. When the new launch happens, the old watches will become more valuable. I, I absolutely do. If you can find one in good condition, a vintage Accutron, try and buy it now for sure. And look at what Bulova has done with the Computron last year. Um, tremendous success digging back to those 70s archives. No one would have thought that would have been an, you know, uh, a no-brainer success. But that watch is, you know, I know so many serious watch collectors that that's their fun watch that they just wear around. That, that Computron, it's crazy. But that, that longing for nostalgia you know, is, is super strong right now in, in luxury, um, for sure, and in watches. Reg Brock has a crystal ball, and it's made of Baccarat, because uh, that's what he does. <laughs> He's from NPD, and uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Reg. Thank you. Well, like a finely tuned watch, we're out of time. For David Graver and Scott Alexander, I'm Bill McCuddy. Thanks for listening to The Accutron Show. Thank you for listening to The Accutron Show. To hear all our shows, visit AccutronWatch.com. For upcoming guests as well as behind-the-scenes action, follow us on Instagram at AccutronWatch. From the 29th floor of the Empire State Building, until next time, Accutron time. Set your tuning forks. <laughs>